This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Lost Episode 3 Here at the Word of the Week, we're celebrating a milestone. As of April the 20th, we've been at this for two years. If you're thinking of getting us a gift, you should know that the second anniversary is traditionally considered the cotton anniversary. We could use some new t-shirts. Alternatively, if you prefer a more modern gift, the second anniversary is also considered the China anniversary. Now, we don't have much of a need for white porcelain. But we do love some lo mein, egg foo young, and sesame chicken. So feel free to send that along. As far as what color the t-shirt should be, the second anniversary is traditionally associated with the color red. And if you want to get us something sparkly, the appropriate gemstone for the second anniversary is garnet or rose quartz. So we've decided to celebrate our second anniversary by... What? You want to know where all this traditional gift stuff comes from? Well, fine. We were planning to take it easy this week to reward ourselves for two great years. We were going to do one of our occasional grab bags of cutting room floor factoids, one of our lost episodes, specifically lost episode number three. But the history of anniversaries and traditional anniversary gifts is actually pretty interesting. So we can fit that in. But first, we have some embarrassing housekeeping to take care of. It's time for some corrections and retractions, because some alert listeners have clued us into a few minor little errors that have managed to sneak into our episodes. Unfortunately, we're only humans. First of all, a listener identified only as our friendly neighborhood paleontologist called out a few points of contention in our episode about the dire wolf. In that episode, we glossed over about 60 million years of evolution. We identified the ancestors of modern canids as the Myacid, and said that the Myacid first appeared about 65 million years ago, just as the world was saying goodbye to the dinosaurs. But we implied that the earliest true canids, the Cynodictus, appeared in short order, and then suddenly we had wolves. In truth, Cynodictus didn't appear until about 40 million years ago, and Grey Wolves only made the scene about 1 million years ago. Our bad. In our defense, we knew the time scale, more or less, but in the process of writing and editing, it all sort of got compressed into a quick succession. Our paleontologist friend also pointed out two other interesting facts. First, the Red Wolf, a very recent species, may actually be a hybrid between Grey Wolves and Coyotes. Also, hyenas are not actually canines at all. The name hyena comes from a Greek word originally derived from the word heis, that's H-Y-S, and it apparently means pig. So naturally, hyena are not related to dogs at all. They're related to cats, though they are several steps removed from actual felines and in a family all of their own. Hyenas are members of the family Hyenidae. Cats are members of family Felidae. But they are both members of a subset of carnivores known as Feliformia, or cat-shaped animals. Wolves and other canines are members of the subset of carnivores known as Caniformia, or dog-shaped animals. Oh, and we're totally prepared to pretend the Ardwolf doesn't exist. So thanks, friendly paleontologist. 
The other correction we have to make is a thankfully minor one. Several of our listeners pointed out a typo at the end of our episode about the rat. That episode naturally devolved into a history of the British monarchy and parliament. Because what else would a discussion of rats lead to? Anyway, at the very end of the episode, we discussed how a minor German noble of House Hanover ended up on the British throne. We discussed the bloodless revolution of 1688, and that occurred when the people of England asked William III, a Dutch prince of the House of Orange, to come and overthrow the unpopular King James II. William of Orange did so, along with his wife Mary II, who was awkwardly also King James II's daughter. Now, in our version, we accidentally said that William's wife was Anne. That was nothing more than a typo. In truth, Anne was Mary's sister and James's other daughter. After Mary died in 1694, William ruled alone until 1702 when he also died. The couple had no children and Anne ascended the throne. After that, our story is correct. In 1714, Queen Anne died childless, and because most of her family were Catholic, had married Catholics, or were suspected of Catholic sympathies, the throne passed to George Hanover. Thanks to everyone who caught that little typo. We strive to deliver the most accurate information possible, so when we do make mistakes, we want to know about them. But we digress. Anniversaries. If you somehow don't know what an anniversary is, an anniversary is the annual remembrance of a particular event. It derives from the Latin word annus, meaning year, and versus, meaning to turn. It's literally the turning of the year. Technically, birthdays are an anniversary celebration. But in the United States and many Western countries, the word anniversary also specifically refers to a wedding anniversary, in observance of which it is also traditional for the spouses to exchange gifts. And especially in the United States, there are traditional gifts to give for each wedding anniversary. Most people only know the two big milestones, the 25th silver anniversary and the 50th gold anniversary. But in the United States, since 1937, there has been a traditional gift to give for every single anniversary up to the 50th, and one to give for each 5th anniversary thereafter up to the 95th. In fact, there are two gifts for each anniversary. And if you check with the greeting card and gift super corporation Hallmark, they will tell you each and every one. But even though Hallmark has ensured the list remains public knowledge and has certainly profited from it, they didn't actually create the list. Although they did later do a lot of research into where the original list comes from. So where did it come from? It came from the Chicago Public Library. You didn't see that one coming, did you? But it's true. In 1937, librarians at the Chicago Public Library compiled a list of traditional wedding anniversary gifts. And this was based on an earlier list by American author Emily Post. Emily Post was born Emily Price in 1872 in Baltimore, Maryland to a wealthy architect. According to a recent biography, she was tall, pretty, spoiled, and grew up amongst the wealthy elite of Baltimore and New York. She attended a finishing school, and her life was entrenched in the customs, etiquette, and rituals of the business aristocracy. Post began her career writing newspaper articles about interior design, but moved on to writing novels and travel books. However, she became most well-known for her books on etiquette. Soon thereafter, she became a radio personality and a syndicated etiquette columnist. 
And during this period, in 1917, she published a list of traditional gifts for spouses to exchange on milestone wedding anniversaries. In 1937, the librarians at the Chicago Public Library noted a couple of problems with the traditional list Post had compiled. First of all, it was quite out of touch with the modern era. For example, the first anniversary was designated the paper anniversary, cotton for the second, the seventh was wool, the eighth was iron, then pottery and tin and steel. In the intervening years, things like cotton and paper went from being hard to acquire signs of wealth and prosperity to relatively easy to come by. They didn't represent substantial meaningful gifts anymore. The second problem with the traditional list was that it omitted a lot of years. After the 15th anniversary, milestone years came every five years. So after compiling and republishing the traditional list, they moved some things around, added some modern gift ideas, and filled in many of the blanks. The first anniversary became the clock anniversary. The second was the china anniversary. Appliances, silverware, jewelry, watches, and fur all replaced various traditional gift ideas that just weren't lavish enough for the modern age. But Emily's list wasn't just something she invented. The idea of giving gifts for wedding anniversaries and for giving traditional gifts dates back a long time. According to researchers at the Funk and Wagnalls Standard Dictionary of Folklore, Mythology, and Legend, many of the traditional anniversary gifts can be traced back to Germanic folklore. Indeed, the practice of anniversary gift-giving itself dates back to the Middle Ages. The tradition apparently started with the Silver Anniversary. In the Germanic kingdoms of Central Europe in the Middle Ages, it was traditional for a husband to present his wife with a silver wreath or garland on the 25th wedding anniversary. See, silver is one of those metals that has always been associated with mystical properties. It was thought to symbolize harmony, peace, and protection. Germanic couples also celebrated the gold anniversary. Over the years, various other gifts became traditional, often because of symbolic meanings. But the practice really exploded under the reign of Queen Victoria in the United Kingdom between 1837 and 1901. By that time, eight anniversary milestones were being recognized. The first, every fifth one up to the 25th, and then the 50th and 75th. Interestingly, the 75th anniversary was the diamond anniversary. But when Queen Victoria celebrated the 60th anniversary of her ascension to the throne with a so-called diamond jubilee, the 60th anniversary took over as the diamond one. The Victorian list became the basis for Emily Post's list. Emily Post's list became the basis for the Chicago Public Library list. And the Chicago Public Library list is where Hallmark gets its information today. It should be noted that, not to be outdone, another group published a list of traditional wedding anniversary gifts. The American Gem Trade Association, founded in 1981, first published their Gemstone Information Manual in 1985. While the document is primarily a set of consumer and disclosure standards for gemstone manufacturers, wholesalers, and retailers, it also includes a list of traditional gemstone gifts for milestone anniversaries. But that's enough about the history of anniversaries. After all, this is supposed to be a lost episode. We're supposed to share some of the interesting tidbits we had to cut out of previous episodes. And, as it happens, we ended up cutting a lot of content out of both our episodes about the dire wolves and our episode about rats. 
One of the things we left out of our episode about dire wolves is domestication. And that's a big thing to leave out. See, on the list of the most significant developments in the course of human history, domestication is pretty near the top. It's right up there with agriculture and tools. It's really that significant. Domestication refers to a biological partnership between humanity and another species, like dogs, or rather, like wolves. During the end of the last ice age, around 15,000 years ago, the tundra areas of Asia and Europe were home to massive mammals like bison and mastodons. And there were two hunters competing to bring down these prizes, humans and wolves. Both are remarkably similar. Both species are pack-oriented, forming social groups and recognizing members of their own pack. They are distrustful of outsiders. They are both social species, good at reading social cues from their kin, and they are protective of their young. Packs are family-based and often dominated by a strong male in partnership with a female who has secondary authority. It's the social aspects that likely led to the first partnerships between humans and wolves. It probably began when a human pack found an abandoned or orphaned wolf cub and raised it. The biological hardwiring that made the two species so similar allowed the wolf to thrive among the humans. Thus, the partnership was forged. And it was quite a natural partnership that benefited both species. Human ingenuity and human tool use allowed for more successful hunts against larger prey. Wolves' speed and ferocity was essentially just another tool, another weapon for humans to use. The first signs of domestication come from the jawbone of a wolf found in a cave in a rock that was inhabited by humans 12,000 years ago. The wolf's jaw is smaller than that of a standard wolf, indicating that humans had already begun selectively breeding wolves. Of course, this was done by accident at first. The wolves with the healthiest coat, the most obedient wolf, the friendliest wolf. Those are the ones in the litter that humans treat well and are likely to keep and care for. So over time, those qualities become favored, and those favored animals gave birth to litters much like themselves. And from those litters, the best were favored, and so on. Over time, as different cultures valued different qualities in their animals, the various breeds of wolves diverged greatly. One ancient Roman text advises that dogs with white coats should be favored by shepherds, so as to distinguish them from dangerous wolves while black dogs should be favored as guard dogs, so as to surprise and frighten thieves. Romans were also the first culture to favor so-called lapdogs. The warmth of a lapdog was said to cure stomach aches. And that is how, as radically different as they all are, all modern breeds of domestic dog are descended from the same species of wolf. But domestication didn't end with wolves. Wolves were neat as hunting partners and as companions and cures for stomach ache. But it wasn't until we started domesticating animals that could serve as a source of food that we could truly call ourselves agrarians instead of hunter-gatherers with vegetable gardens. And that happened first in the Middle East about 9,000 years ago in northern Iraq. In a place called Shanidar, the first sheep and goats appear to have been domesticated. Soon thereafter, we have evidence of domesticated cattle in Asia Minor and oxen and pigs in China and these animals served as sources of meat, but they also served other purposes. From sheep, you can get wool for clothing. From cattle and goats, you can get milk. And they are all also a source of baby animals. 
In 4000 BCE, villagers in India and Southeast Asia discovered another use for animals like oxen. They could put them to work dragging plows and wagons. At that point, domestication was basically providing for every human need except fruits and vegetables. From domesticated animals you get meat, security and protection, clothing, milk, and labor. In fact, some recent scholars have pointed to domestication as a possible major reason for the technological disparity between the European and Asian cultures and the cultures of North and South America. See, the American continents are lacking in something that Europe and Asia had in abundance, domesticatable animals. Whether an animal can be domesticated or not is based on a number of factors, but the most substantial factor is their willingness to breed in captivity. If you can't get an animal to have babies in captivity, you can't domesticate the thing. And except for the llama in South America and the mink in North America, there just aren't many useful animals in the Americas you can domesticate easily. And we should note that some consider this a controversial viewpoint. But, speaking of major events in history that we left out of previous episodes, let's go back to the rat episode. See, the rat episode presented a major challenge. You might have noticed that a lot of the history of the British monarchy involved a lot of conflict between three major groups, the Protestants, the Catholics, and the Anglicans. And that's because, while the Anglican church was pretty much confined to England, much of the entire history of Europe between the 1500s and the 1700s involved a lot of conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics. In fact, from 1618 to 1648, one of the most brutal European wars between the Catholics and the Protestants occurred. The Thirty Years' War. What you have to understand is that the Christian faith, like all major world religions, is divided into various sects or ideological groups. While they all accept the basic tenets of the faith, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of humanity and His teachings will lead the way into God's kingdom, they differ in many of the details. They interpret the various teachings and scriptures differently. And over time, these sects develop their own traditions, rites, rituals, and rules. Catholicism began as one such sect of Christianity. The name derives from the Greek word Catholicos, which means universal. In the 11th century, tensions between two of the major sects of Christianity reached a boiling point, and in 1054, the church government split the faith in two. The Holy Roman Empire and Western Europe began following Catholic doctrine. Greece, Russia, and the Slavic lands began following the Orthodox tradition that had grown from the Byzantine Empire. And as the Holy Roman Empire gained power under feudalism and through its influence with European monarchs, the Catholic Church came to dominate Europe. Over the next 400 years, the Papal State's wealth and political influence grew, and much of that wealth and influence was derived by exchanging spiritual favors, called indulgences, for donations. The idea, which we discussed in our episode about saints, was that a sacrifice in this world could be seen as a sort of mystical time served in the hereafter. Sins could be erased if the sinner confessed and gave up something of value. So Catholicism began to favor the wealthy aristocracy, who had lots of valuable things to give up. And there was growing resentment among the faithful towards such practices. Add to that the fact that there was also a growing feeling that Catholic traditions and dogma were overshadowing scripture, 
and that tradition was handed down by authoritarian priests inaccessible to the common folk, and the whole situation was basically a powder keg. A single bolt of lightning in the right place would set the whole thing off. Literally. In 1505, a young man from Saxony in the Holy Roman Empire, now a part of Germany, a young man, Martin Luther, was caught in a violent thunderstorm and survived a near miss with a bolt of lightning. He vowed that if he survived this storm, he would give up his master's study of law and devote his life to God. He survived and he joined a monastery and became a monk. The monastery he joined was an Augustinian monastery, and it had clung to the ideals of the 4th century philosopher and theologian Augustine. Those ideals included two central tenets, that only God could bestow salvation, and that scripture, not traditions invented by mortals, should serve as the basis for faith. Luther began speaking out against the Catholic practices and gathering a following in the German states. After Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic faith, he wrote a short treatise called The Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. In it, he included 95 questions and talking points regarding the failings of the Catholic Church. Legend has it that he nailed these 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg Castle. In reality, it appears he only hung up a leaflet announcing an academic discussion of said points. Luther's writings were condemned as heresy, but the damage was done. He touched off what is now called the Protestant Reformation. This led to the foundation of Protestantism and various Protestant subsects of Christianity, including Lutheranism and Calvinism. At the time, the parts of the Holy Roman Empire that we today call Germany were divided up into hundreds upon hundreds of tiny political states that were held under the loose authority of the Austrian Habsburg family. In the 1500s and 1600s, these states became polarized between Catholicism and Protestantism. Fearing a loss of political power, Emperor Ferdinand II of the Holy Roman Empire began to curb the rights of Protestants in the Habsburg states. In 1618, revolution broke out, and the festering hostility between the Catholic and Protestant states led to war. Ferdinand called on the rulers of Catholic nations to aid him in putting down the rebellion, and it appeared that the revolution would be quashed. But then, in 1630, King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden brought his armies into the conflict to aid the Protestant states, and the French government provided money and aid to the revolutionaries. And at this point, the conflict became war between the greatest powers in Europe, Sweden, France, Spain, and Austria, fought primarily in German lands. It was a bloody war, famous for its atrocities and loss of human life. In fact, 20% of the entire population of the German states was killed in the war. In some places, the loss of life was up to 50%, and numerous villages and towns were utterly eradicated. The lingering effects rewrote the political and religious boundaries in Europe forever after. That said, following the Thirty Years' War, neither the Catholic Church nor the Holy Roman Empire enjoyed anything akin to the power and influence it had before the conflict over European politics. that, we close our third Lost episode. But before we end this second anniversary show, 
we'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners who have helped make this show a success, and thanks especially to our Patreon supporters. Without their support, this show couldn't have made it to its second year. If you're not a supporter yet, please consider helping us make it to our third anniversary. Meanwhile, we're going out to celebrate. For some reason, we've got a hankering for Chinese. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. Thank you.